You are listening to an episode of The Witch Doctor, a serial fiction podcast that is part of the transtemporal narrative of the Fallen Cycle mythos. Spoilers for Season 1 ahead. Though the mythos spans every stretch of time and space, our story focuses in on a point in time centuries after the fall, a great cataclysm in the now distant past that has scarred the earth and rendered much of it uninhabitable. Our ears prick up at the tales of certain individuals, burly and haggard in appearance, who reside within the little border town of Noel, forgotten offspring of the theocratic nation-state of the Domus. Noel, though dry and desolate, borders the outermost edges of Domus territory, a verdant but dangerous forest known as the Wilder. The river that separates them is toxic, undrinkable, but within the Wilder, mutant and beast lurk along with the mysterious and deadly Essel, rarely seen wilderfolk who exist mostly as legend. The Noelites do not dare tread within the forest, save for a handful of desperate scavers intent on harvesting and selling rare relics and treasures left behind in that space. But one night, Noel's children, perhaps the last children, begin to go missing. Amid the town's sorrow, a convoy of traders arrive up the river from the Domus, the town is shocked to realize that the convoy men were accompanied aboard their vessel by a troop of militarist zealots, the Devout, de facto rulers of the Domus. Their representatives are looking for something. But what? Huntress and de facto Noel Sheriff, Artemis Kokonos goes in search for the children, finds a lead, and ends up discovering within the wilder not the body of a Noelite, but that of an Essel child, locked in a box and apparently starved to death in the possession of a few lost convoy men who, apparently, had gone insane. An aging scaver named Chet, accompanying Artemis at her behest, witnesses the sheriff become overwhelmed with rage and stands by in shock as she murders the convoy men in possession of the dead child. Later, a stranger is discovered spying on Noel as yet another child, Isaac, son of Abram, goes missing. Artemis captures the stranger who tells her his name is Jack, and who denies any involvement. In fact, quite the opposite, Jack claims that he arrives in Noel to help find the missing kids. He claims to be a witch doctor, a near-mythical cast of individuals outlawed by the devout, workers of miracles, learners of secrets, breakers of curses. Not believing the stranger, Artemis locks him in the town hall. She knows that the call for blood will begin, but why does she think Jack might be telling the truth? The Witch Doctor includes adult themes such as violence and strong language. Season 2, Episode 1. Nothing they said made any sense before, and nothing they said made any sense now. People who hadn't talked to him in months, except to take his money, suddenly saw fit to speak. Consolations as empty as a clear winter sky. Barbed words intended to soothe, but they weren't the ones who were missing a son. They didn't understand. The other parents who lost their own children weren't the ones coming around to talk. It was the rest, the insufferable and small. Abram knew this, and after the first few, stopped answering the knocks at his door. Even his stepdaughters avoided him, blamed him, probably. He could envision their eyes, so much like their mother's. They hated him, and he hated himself, and there was nothing that was ever going to change that ever again. 
Not now. Not with Isaac missing. My sweet boy, Abram said reverently, alone in his room, as though it were a magic incantation that would bring Isaac back. He sat up on the side of his cot, bare feet pressed against the floor, feeling the grit of sand and dirt tracked in and never swept out. He clutched a bottle of vodka in his hand, and it felt cool and reassuring. Tipping the bottle forward and back, he made the liquid slosh, pondered its weight. He raised the bottle to his nose, then lowered it to his lips, and took a long pull. He repeated this three times, as if completing his magic ritual, then sat in the silence of his son's absence and began to cry. Silently at first, slowly, then it grew and enveloped his entire body. Isaac wasn't even supposed to be with him the night he was taken. The boy didn't live with his father, not since Connie had died and Abram had gone back to the bottle, and Abram understood why. The one-room shack he lived in was no place for a boy, but that night, Abram had wanted to see his son. Isaac, unlike his older sisters, children born to Connie before Abram had arrived in Noel, hadn't yet realized the simple truth. Abram was a loser. It was how he saw himself and how others saw him. He was a drunk, only managed to eke out a living from occasional hard labor and charity. Noelites didn't let you die unless there was nothing to be done. Nobody starved in Noel, though plenty went hungry in their turn. Abram wasn't sure that compassion guided the townsfolk's kindness. Instead, he thought it a kind of grim obstinance, a form of quiet rebellion against the territories, against death itself. Strangers assimilated poorly into Noel, not always the stranger's fault, but the townsfolk had liked him once upon a time, or had at least acted the part. It helped that Connie had fallen head over heels for him, married him in the only way they could, and carried his child. That she had died in childbirth seemed to extinguish the small warmth the townsfolk had kindled towards him. His stepdaughters despised him now. Their tolerance for his alcoholism had evaporated the moment their mother had been buried. Who was it, exactly, that had been passed out drunk while their mother suffocated on her own vomit? They didn't acknowledge Abram's place as stepfather, partially because he'd never properly married Connie. Their marriage had never been consecrated by the devout. Back when they had all lived together, before the person that united them was put in the ground, Abram had thought his stepdaughters loved him. But now, he was not so sure. Abram's sobs quieted, the well suddenly dry. Connie had been the only one who believed in him, then Isaac, and now, who was there? No one. Abram set the bottle down atop a wobbling end table and rose a little shakily himself. He moved towards the solitary windowed wall, leaned on the sill, and stared off into the darkness. That window was meant for Connie's house, but she died before he could install it. They'd scraped for months, putting aside hemp script, looking for odd jobs, cutting corners. Connie never got to look through it, as Abram looked through it now. A brooding darkness obscured the overgrown weeds and half-dead trees that surrounded his shack, but a few lights could be seen from the center of the resettlement. Everyone was on high alert. Chester Vilkinson's home, his closest neighbor and Chet to most everyone, sat unilluminated somewhere through the foliage. Abram felt alone despite the proximity. 
The searches had gone on for maybe two hours before the resettlement citizens decided there was nothing more to be done. Each child lost degraded the townsfolk's impetus further. Each search was shorter than the last. They'd hunted for days when Cory went missing. Now, in a matter of hours, they'd abandoned Isaac altogether. Just for the night, just for the night, Administrator Plord had told Abram, before they parted ways. Abram was assured the search would pick up after the first light. Everyone crowded on the street where he had fallen and were told to meet at the town hall in the morning. But what was to be done? Nothing had ever been found. Had he been with his sisters, would the boy have been taken at all? This thought penetrated the layers of indolent misery. His own words echoed back to him. Not another drop, I swear, Abram had said. A boy needs his father. They'd relented, given how often they refused him, he wasn't sure why. But he kept to his promise and remained completely sober while Isaac spent the night. They had played games, and Abram told rare stories, always careful to edit them for small ears, about living in the south, deep in the heartlands of the Domus. Only Connie knew the truth about what had brought Abram to Noel all those years ago. It had taken time, but time was the one thing they thought they had, and the years he'd spent with her and their little family had worn him down, dissolved his barriers, until eventually he had spilled it all. Isaac only got an approximation of these stories, embellished specters of the truth meant to excite and amuse. Abram's time in the Domus hadn't been entirely terrible. These memories were tinged with an aura of wonder, of adventure. The atrocities came later. The two of them, father and son, had stayed up far past the boy's usual bedtime. Abram ultimately drifted off with the lad in his lap, stroking his hair. Then. For no reason he could discern, Abram awoke in the middle of the night, his arms empty. Isaac's disappearance didn't even seem odd at first. He was prone to sleepwalking, had been for as long as he'd been able to walk. But Isaac was not in that room, nor outside the shack. A few blurry minutes later, it dawned on Abram that Isaac had not simply wandered off. A dreamlike quality infused those moments, a sense that nothing was quite real. Reality came later and hadn't left since. His boy was gone, and his absence grew to encompass Abram's world. Maybe it only revealed how empty it always was. Abram turned away from the window and moved back towards the cot. He squatted down on his knees, pressed up against the trailing blankets, and pulled a box from beneath his bed. It was deep, wide, crafted from panels of wood, discolored by the damp that clung perpetually to his shack's floor. Abram placed the box atop his cot, sat beside it, and stared at it as if it could stare right back. I should have thrown you in the river, Abram said. But he knew the reason he had kept it, knew that one day the need might arise again. He pulled off the lid and looked inside. Abram lifted a bundle wrapped in plastic and oiled cloth, feeling the weight of it. He unraveled a semi-automatic handgun. Its grip was etched with the monogram of the devout, a symbol all recognized but few understood the significance of, only the slightest suggestion of the Yeshuite sacrificial cross. He held the gun as it was meant to be held, letting the oil cloths fall away. The gun looked almost as new as it had when he'd been issued it long years ago. Abram ejected the magazine, not completely sure whether he'd ever unloaded the thing, and saw that he had. He rifled through the box and pulled out a satchel of ammunition, checked the cartridges for signs of corruption, and, finding none, set the box and gun aside. 
Abram stared at the remaining contents of the box, his heart racing, sweat beating on his forehead. He pulled away the remaining plastic and looked at the face that lay in the box. The mask, eyes empty and dead, so similar and yet so different from those worn by the zealots, by the thugs called Daggermen. White instead of black, pointed chin jutting outward, cracks from its last use still visible across the left cheek. His initiation into the devout elect flashed in his mind, along with scenes of brimstone and ash, but he shook his head and banished them. He looked at what remained in the box, a sack of clothes as black as the mask was white, and atop them, a folded, wide-brimmed Capitan hat, the vestments of a witchfinder. Hey folks, I just wanted to take a second and talk about a very exciting Fallen Cycle project that is currently underway. The Kickstarter for Tales from When I Had a Face, an illustrated novel set within the Fallen Cycle mythos, is slated to begin in September of 2021. Tales is a work of mythpunk, speculative fiction slash fantasy, with a healthy dab of horror for good measure. It's a haunting, color-illustrated novel over seven years in the making, Tales from When I Had a Face takes visual inspiration from the collections of fairy tales familiar to many readers. Tales is intended to speak to anyone who has felt trapped between the multiple, often conflicting worlds of past, present, and future. Funding from this campaign will allow us to conclude the seven-year journey, including editing, layout, and further funding for the art team. A short-run first edition and a range of perks, including enamel and acrylic pins, vinyl stickers, archival art prints, and more. The remaining stock will provide a first run for forthcoming cons, hopefully beginning in 2022. It is our hope that in the process of engaging with the story as a ritual act, the reader brings this process full circle, and it is only through them that the fantasy can re-enter our world and become transformed into something real. Visit FallenCycle.com to learn more about the Tales Kickstarter starting in September 2021. Thank you for listening, and back to the Witch Doctor. Well, I don't think he's a Witch Doctor. Artemis crossed her arms. I mean, just look at him. He looks... She waved her hand in the general direction of their captive. Destitute? Lord offered. Like shit. Artemis finished. He looks like a vagrant. Plord seemed to consider this, his face scrunched up as though he had just swallowed a fly. Well, then what do witch doctors look like exactly? He stared at Artemis. His earnest gaze reminded her of a mutt she used to know. The same desperate zeal to please. Seeing it from a puppy had been endearing, but with Plord, she felt only vague unease. As though she was perpetually embarrassed not of the man, but for him. It was friendly, benign, unctuous. She'd rather be elsewhere, talking to anyone else, doing anything other than entertaining this poor wreck of a man. Artemis took a breath, let it out. I don't know. I've only ever seen one. It was back when I was a kid. What did he look like? She, Artemis corrected. I don't remember much. She was old, older than anyone I'd ever seen before. Mostly I remember all the stuff she was lugging around. Big old case, leather bound, real beauty. I remember thinking it looked like magic. She glanced in the direction of the unconscious captive. He looks like he'd stick you for your boots. I can't imagine for the life of me why he thought claiming to be a witch doctor would get him out of the mess. 
We may be on the edge of the Empire, but that doesn't mean we don't obey the proclamations, Plorg said. A snort escaped Artemis. Yeah, we're the epitome of law and order around these parts. Her badge seemed to glint in its own sort of mirth. Well, we do the best we can, anyway. Don't take it personally, Plorg, Artemis said, seeing the administrator's lips purse. This ain't the place for law and order. If we did everything the party told us to, we'd be dead before the week was out. Plord's face reddened, and he took a deep breath before speaking, the words escaping as though he were being pressed like a grape, as though his truths could only be extricated under the most enormous of pressures. You might find this hard to believe, Miss Kovanos, but I know exactly what it takes to keep this resettlement going. Noel was here long before you arrived, and Lord Father be willing it will exist long after the two of us are subsumed by the earth. He pointed a finger at the door to his office. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a few things to take care of before I retire. Artemis sat motionless, looking plored in the eyes, saying nothing. His finger curled, wilted like the crops in the fields, and for a moment she thought she saw fear in his eyes. It was unlike the administrator to be so blunt, to be anything other than cordial, and Artemis thought she might even prefer him this way, but she decided not to push it. Have a good night, Administrator, she said, tipping her campaign hat. I'm going to keep an eye on the prisoner. Territory justice is a way of sneaking in during the dark hours. Artemis left the office, closed the door slowly behind herself, and made her way back to the room adjacent to the prisoner's makeshift cell. She dragged a chair in there earlier, set a few feet in front of the door. The room was quiet, the only noise the prisoner's sleeping breaths sliding out from under the door. She got comfortable, as comfortable as was possible in such a hardback chair, and waited for sunrise. Despite herself, the wear and effort of the day started to creep over her. Her eyelids oscillated, grew heavy, started to droop, forced open only to droop again. The door to the closet was locked, bound shut by a sturdy, if rusted, chain. There'd be no way for the man to escape. Jack, she corrected herself and felt a stab of something, not guilt, but a certain discomfort at the prospect of the kidnapper having a name. Of course he must, and yet knowing it unsettled her. Jack. A common name, shared by at least half a dozen or more Noahlites. A name that happened to mean nothing in the sense of Jack Shit. That's about as much as they knew about the man. Jack Shit. Artemis began to replay the events of the last months, and then, without recognition, drifted seamlessly into a deep sleep from her maintained illusion of wakefulness. She dreamed in frightful fits and starts of a time and place before Noel, of her father and his mountainous body always so reassuring against the living nights of the wilder, his bulk the cornerstone of guardianship throughout her adolescence. She remembered a time before she was Artemis at all, before she had been given the name against her wishes. That name bore a terrible and exacting price, and she had paid it without fully realizing what she had given up. A title and an office, a throwback to an earlier time. Artemis remembered her life before, and then the sudden change. No more father, no more cottage in the lovely nook. Her dreams bled into nightmares, colored by fire and blood. And then whether through loss or avoidance, they faded into nothingness. Time passed in the waking world, but Artemis had no conception. Her sleep was marred by the sounds of something scraping, something stomping. She jerked awake, unsure of what or why, 
her eyes suddenly open and slowly scanning the room. It was still dark. She heard footsteps outside the room coming from the meeting hall, hushed voices as hesitant as their footfalls. She uncoiled from the chair and came fully awake in that moment, suddenly silent, a hand upon her knife hilt. She crept towards the outside door that led away from the side rooms and into the main hall. Closer now, she could hear the whispered words from the other side. Hurry up! Quiet, you! Quickly now, come on! Grimacing, Artemis grabbed the doorknob and yanked the door open. A small group of Noelites, six in total, huddled by the entrance. Their faces seemed cut from the same cloth, each mouth opened and eyes wide at the sight of the so-called sheriff. Artemis leaned back nonchalantly, against the doorframe, arm above her head, her skinning knife dangling from her fingers, a steel falcon ready to swoop down and taste blood. Red, she said, recognizing one of them instantly. How are you doing? He had watched the prisoner for a few hours, no doubt riling the townsfolk up with the stories of the child thief who, for unknown reasons, still drew breath in the town hall. Now he stammered in response, unable to form any real sentence in reply. Her pose unnerved and placated, as though they had wandered in on her morning stretches instead of being caught sneaking around. We're here for the killer, said another man, Henry something. Well, you're shit out of luck, Artemis replied, pushing off the wall gracefully, lowering her eyes with casual indifference rather than submission. Although her expression was pleasant, the silent threat of violence lingered in her eyes. Any of you come in here without the administrator's say, and you're liable to take a trip to Catherine. She sheathed the blade without looking down, but kept her hand on its hilt. They left without another word, though their eyes, squinted and hateful, communicated enough. The resettlement's general distrust was distilled in that moment. Fear, not just of the prisoner in the closet, but of everything tainted by the outside world. Life within the Palisades might be difficult, but life outside of it was unthinkable. As such, all beings who existed outside the resettlement were abominations, an impossibility made flesh. Even the traders, sailing up on their convoys, were widely regarded with awe and gossiped about. They brought goods from New Plymouth, which led to stories of gunpowder and blood from the Badlands. Soon enough, they wound up in the folklore and myths of the territories. But if, God forbid, those traders and convoymen stayed, and such was known to happen, though infrequently, they were soiled, stripped of their mythical status, and treated as a subtler kind of invader. Noelites were suspicious of anyone who chose to live among them at the foot of the wilder, on blighted land. Why would anyone choose to live as they did? It was never discussed. There was no law, but if you lived there long enough, Artemis knew you'd see even the friendliest Noelites' mask slip in the presence of outsiders. The resettlement was dying. She could smell it in the air. Noel was dying, and the resettlement was deciding each citizen one part of a larger animal, thinking together whether killing the prisoner would restore it, whether it would deliver them all from the wilder and its cloying, festering darkness, from the forest's living death. As Artemis saw it, Chet was right about folks wanting to end the kidnappings. The prisoner's otherness, his sudden appearance, the timing of it all was sufficient evidence, a place largely run off of traditions barely a generation old, cobbled together out of the carcass of the past. Theories and arguments about the disappearance of their children would be put on hold. Rumors would slacken and coagulate. 
stitching themselves around the form of this hapless prisoner until there would be nothing that could stop the townsfolk from taking him. If he was guilty, which she believed likely, then justice would work itself out. There were three missing children and you got strung up for a lot less in the territories. A gulp of air for a drowning resettlement. Artemis had not really known the missing children, nor had she been friends with their parents, and yet she felt something in her echo the thorny attitudes of the Noelites. A trick, that simplicity. Like a lurefish goading its food with ghost lights. If he isn't guilty, Artemis thought, it's gonna get worse. It alarmed her to realize that the more she thought about it, the less sure she was. It wasn't the way he cut himself loose, the shiv was hardly dangerous nor the stories he spun about being a witch doctor. It was something else. Jack was dangerous, she had no doubt, but there was something about his pallor, underneath the wild tangle of beard and hair that suggested illness, perhaps mortal. He had been easy to run down, easy to catch. The hairs on the back of her neck rose, ears perked up and nostrils flared, as though picking up on a scent, excited by the hunt. Her pupils widened until her eyes were almost onyx. Her mind reeled, calculating and comparing notes, and she realized that each house, each location of the missing children, had glass windows. The bedroom windows had been the children's most likely route of egress in each disappearance. The fact they had each been glass panes seemed trivial in the past. She had made note of it, but it led nowhere, and fell into the background of her mind. Most folks figured other ways to deal with a lack of glass, but sometimes you got lucky with the traders or in the ruins. A few glass windows on a large house wasn't uncommon, especially if the householders were prosperous. But each of their rooms had glass windows. Artemis remembered now. The missing children made no sounds, made no apparent struggle. She imagined the prisoner looming out from the darkness at them, offering them sweets or toys to climb through. Never in a million years would they have left with him. Chet couldn't sleep, so he lied there, staring up at the ceiling, watching the darkness watching him. It did not share its knowledge, however. He breathed in deep rhythmic patterns. He scratched at a bug bite on his arm, turned over but found no relief. Making a noise somewhere between a groan and a sigh, he got up and put on his clothes, laced his boots, grabbed his rifle, and without making another sound, each creaking step in the house an old friend easily avoided, he made for the rat skeller. The moon illuminated his nighttime trek, reflecting off the yellow grass. The sky had remained clear, and Chet thought it looked like it might just stay that way. The dirt crunched beneath his feet, the telltale crackle of dirt bereft moisture. He could smell the dust it kicked up, amazed to some small extent that he could even notice it anymore. No old dust had a way of sticking in your throat. It was what drove folks to drink, or so it went. Chet didn't partake much. Alcohol always made a ruckus in his guts. Back in the first days of the resettlement, being drunk would have been a liability, though plenty of them had been, had figured out crude methods of brewing bread beer, even fermented the pulp of strange wilder fruit if the occasion arose. We were braver then, Chet thought to himself. Or dumber. Probably dumber. The first resettlers had made frequent trips to the wilder, foraged for berries and other morsels before they'd realized the folly of such actions. But they had learned. People had died. Flora and fauna that resembled their smaller southern cousins were toxic instead of nutritious. 
Methods of food preparation unique to the Northern Territories had yet to be developed, and many people fell ill with a wide variety of allergies, illnesses, and cancers. What was more, besides the diseased local ecosystem, were the creatures that defied any taxonomical niche at all. Plants that moved like predators and ate like predators. Mushrooms whose spores would burn and melt your bare flesh down to the bone. Mammals descended from unknown sources, toothy and far too intelligent. It was a blessing that the human inhabitants of the Wilder, the so-called Essel, had left them largely alone, barring extreme exception. The Wilder was special, but it was not kind. It did not forgive, and Chet thought it probably didn't forget either. The original population of resettlers had been cut in half by the first winter, then cut in half again by its end, and only after that had the wolves come. The rat skeller was still open, was always open, this was to be expected, but Chet was surprised to hear raucous noise from within. He had not been the only one with insomnia. As he drew closer, he found that the sounds he had mistaken for possible merriment, though this was in poor taste to his mind, were in fact the tones of conflict. Hand on the swinging doors, Chet heard voices rising one over another, only to become hushed and start again, pushing in. The Ratskeller fell silent. Folks turned to look at the intruder and saw it was Chet and resumed their conversation. The bar was abandoned. The bartender nowhere to be seen. His night replacement, a youth named Buck, was shoulder to shoulder with a small crowd of men, standing to attention around him like loyal dogs. They've got the son of a bitch at town hall, said one of the men. Chet squinted and recognized the voice as belonging to Red. That fucking woman wouldn't let us in, said another. I thought she was going to slice us. Why is she protecting him? What's she got to hide? asked a third. If Plord isn't gonna handle this, we ought to take this to the dags. But old Coral... Hush you. Chet ignored the conversations, walked over to the bar, and sat down. Buck removed himself from the group of men, came around the counter, and looked him over. What'll it be? Buck said. The youth's eyes flicked from Chet's face to the other men, as though he had a nervous tick. Chet pointed behind the counter at a jug, practically covered in dust. That'll do. Two fingers. Buck nodded and grabbed the jug, scraping a path through the dust, and poured Chet a drink in a cracked wooden cup. Chet nodded in thanks and looked down into the thin red liquid and knocked it back. He inhaled a little of the drink, unpracticed as he was. He coughed, head tilted sideways, mouth buried in the crook of his arm. Didn't take you for a drinker, Buck said, aware of the situation. What's got you up tonight? Chet looked at him, pulled a thin-lipped smile. What do you think has got me up tonight? It's a damn shame what happened. Yeah, Chet said. I know. Everybody knows. Get back to your little meeting. Buck nodded, turned to leave, and stopped. How are you paying for that? Tab. You don't have a tab. Well, Chet pushed the cup back towards the youth. Now I do. Chet walked home, leaving the murmur of late-night patrons behind him. He felt the warmth of the booze, and it loosened up his limbs. Powerful drink on empty stomach. For a moment, it let him forget the pains in his back and legs. The pains of aging and forgotten impacts. He wasn't drunk, but he was 
feeling good. On second thought, his stomach roiled slightly, and he knew with cold certainty that he'd be running for the outhouse before the sun rose. But maybe, just maybe, he'd get some damn sleep beforehand. First, before the rest of the town woke up, he'd be heading to the Wilder, to the rotted motel Artemis had asked him to check out. The motel itself was real enough, but he hadn't seen it in years, hadn't wandered that far beyond the plaza for some time. Did the other scavers know of its existence? Chet didn't think so. The fatality rate went up dramatically the deeper you went, the plaza marking the outer limits of where most of them had dared tread. Most of the buildings in the area were collapsed, more anthill than building, grave markers for a world that didn't exist anymore. Why some of the buildings lasted so long, Chet didn't know. He asked Plord about it once, but hadn't understood the answers. Something about polymers. Chet watched the moon as he walked. It was nearly ripe, and seemed to sway with his gait. Artemis surveyed the shack on the edge of town, moonbeams soaked into the dirt below. It barely lit her way, but it was enough. She scanned for any signs of disturbance and found nothing. It wasn't raining like it had been the other night she'd set out looking for lost children, but the air had a dewy quality and a sense of dire expectancy. Moisture clung to the windows of the shack, visible in thick droplets. The dewcatchers would be yielding tonight. She walked around the outside of the dismal structure, but again found no leads. When she entered, she knocked softly out of habit, or reverence. She knew that it was empty. Her fingers itched for her skinning knife, for something tangible and real. Not much to see at all. Grimy floors, unwashed clothes, an old stinking bowl of lentil and bean soup. Vibrant green and blue molds standing out against the cave-like darkness inside the shack. An old stinking bowl of lentil and bean soup. Her eyes drank it all in. Other folks might need lanterns, torches, but the reflecting light of the moon off the sole window glass was more than enough for Artemis to see everything clearly, and yet see nothing at all. Jack's head hurt. An indeterminate time later, a realization cut through his delirium. The heads of dead men don't throb, don't ache. He had not been lynched in his sleep. Oh, well, he thought. The game always continues, until it doesn't. He knew he should perhaps be more grateful for making it this long without death or dismemberment. But gratitude was a racket. Who exactly should he be grateful to? The answer always depended, always varied with the person responding. The Lord Father was an off-sighted example, but he'd gotten other stranger answers over the years. He had been told that he should thank his birth stars, his mother, other people's mercy, his father, the Domus, various animal effigies, transtemporal forces, ghosts, Yeshua the Hanged Man, ancient primeval deities whose names were all but half forgotten, and of course, plain old dumb luck. Jack didn't consider himself lucky at the moment, locked inside an old closet in the most far back of the backwaters, head ready to burst. He noted that his hands and feet had been rebound, likely by that woman, the one with the sheriff's badge. 
the one who'd kicked the shit out of him. The memory of how quickly she'd moved, how easily she'd seen him, made him feel like a mouse caught in a trap. He tested the bombs, cutting off the circulation to his extremities almost immediately, while the rope around his throat started to strangle him. Jack relented. She was good with a rope, apparently, and there would be no lucky snapping, or access to a razor like before. He'd given away his one shot in a vein of goodwill. He deflated, then shrugged to himself. Might just sit there, waiting patiently for the sheriff to return, just to give her a grin and a wink. Patience, he thought. Reminded of his encounter not long ago with an intelligence far more loathsome than a lone mortal woman. No matter how nimble with a knife, he would figure a way out. He had to. Hey folks, you just listened to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Witch Doctor. A quick update as to the status of Season 2. Due to the last year and other factors, I'm going to probably be releasing them, in part alongside the tales from when I had a face kickstarter and afterward. However, there is as of yet no hard schedule, and likely we will be shifting away from smaller, shorter episodes to longer, more well-produced ones. This means the time between episodes may be longer than the bi-weekly releases of the past, but nothing is set in stone. You can catch updates on FallenCycle.com or my own personal site, AquanimousRex.com. Links in the show notes. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and getting some sweet rewards, both digital and physical, check out the Patreon at patreon.com witchdoc. The Witch Doctor is part of the Fallen Cycle Mythos, a collaborative transmedia project spanning multiple works, including but not limited to comics, musical albums, novels, and more. You can find all current Fallen Cycle projects on fallencycle.com. The music in this episode was created by James Curcio, P. Emerson Williams, and Johan S., if you liked what you heard, you can find more at the Fallen Cycle Bandcamp at fallencycle.bandcamp.com, P. Emerson Williams Panic Machine at digital.panicmachine.com, or Johan S.'s Bandcamp at johann-s.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to James Curcio for mastering the audio.